I'm John Crawl. With the death of veteran broadcaster and journalist Amos Brown, Indiana lost someone who had made lasting contributions to the Hoosier State. On No Limits today, in tribute to Amos Brown, we're going to talk about the means he and many others have been able to use to make such contributions, the African-American news media. My guests will be Shannon Williams of the Indianapolis Recorder, Kim Wells of Radio One and the Indianapolis Association of Black Journalists, and radio host, journalist, and frequent sparring partner of Amos Brown, Abdul Hakim Shabazz. Please join the conversation. Call 866-476-3881. Email is no limits at WFYI.org. Facebook is no limits WFYI. Twitter is WFYI. Now, this news. Welcome to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the StatehouseFile.com, and your host. In the aftermath of the death of legendary broadcaster and journalist Amos Brown, we're going to be talking about the role, reach, and impact, responsibilities, the African-American news media. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881. You can send us an email at nolimits at wfyi.org. You can find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI or on Twitter at WFYI. Well, I've got a great group of guests today, starting with uh, Shannon Williams, uh, who does just about everything at the Indianapolis Recorder, Kim Wells of uh, Radio One and the Indianapolis Association of Black Journalists, and uh, a friend and colleague who wears many hats also, um, including a longtime role as Amos Brown's sparring partner, Abdul, uh, and I probably uh, welcome to all of you. Mm-hmm. It's good to have you Thank here. You. Thank you for having us here. Certainly. Uh, thank you, John. My pleasure to be here. Certainly. And uh, I probably should say Abdul also writes a column for the State House file, just so nobody accuses me of not disclosing <laughs> a relationship. <laughs> at, at one level or another, I think I've worked with almost everyone here in some capacity. Um, and as I said, uh, you know, the springboard for this show was uh, the inspiration, I think, is, mm-hmm. is is Amos Brown and his career. And it's probably appropriate that we start the conversation by listening to a little bit of, of Amos. We have here an interview for the WFYI production, Indiana Trailblazers. In it, Amos Brown describes how he made his way to work in Indianapolis after he graduated from Northwestern University. He worked in PR for the National 4-H Foundation, but quickly realized that broadcasting was his true love. I think I wrote 60, 70 letters. Uh, Maybe got five or six responses back. Two come talk to us. One was a radio station in Chicago. Uh, Got an interview and an offer of $160 a week to be a salesperson. Uh, then I got this letter from Indianapolis, and I said, okay, that's a day, that's two or three hours drive. Uh, I've never been to Indianapolis. It's the capital of Indiana. Let me come down here and interview with this black radio station. So basically came down, drove, culture shock, um, the time zone. That was first culture shock, the time change. Second, went to the circles. I ended up early, drove around the circle, said, what is this thing with a statue in the middle of the town, the circle, and, and pigeons, and all the buses are around, and there's a, a depart- there's a J.C. Penney's. What the heck is this? Ended up with the radio station uh, over the course of an entire day, interviewed with the general manager, was taken to meet the owner of the radio station, uh, had lunch, got uh, got to sit with the DJs, got a full tour, uh, and then had a job offer to be a salesperson at $140 a week. And I said, okay, $160 a week, live in Chicago. They didn't give me a tour. $140, I met everybody, including the owner, made to feel welcome. It was kind of like a family kind of thing. Okay, I'll get away from home. I'll try this for a while. Maybe I'll be here a year, year and a half, two years, get some experience. I can go back home. And that was 40 years ago. And that uh, that is the very distinctive voice of Amos Brown and his <laughs> distinctive story storytelling style. I think probably, you know, most stories you start with the beginning. I think here we'll start at the end um, and work our way backwards. Like uh, each of you to share some thoughts on what 
Amos Brown's lasting impact was and what made him as successful as he was. And then we're going to take that from there into a conversation about, A, whether careers such as his are even still possible. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, how, how important it was that he worked through largely African-American news media, that there was a very particular voice there. Mm-hmm. Shannon, I'm going to start with you. Yeah. Um, it was highly important that he worked through African-American media. I think, you know, obviously Amos had a true love and passion for the community. And um, and he realized that there was a void in the community when he when he initially came to the to Indianapolis in, in particular. Um, and so it was always a passion of his to really be that voice. And it was less about him, the individual, but more about finding answers. And, and holding people accountable. So I think, um, you know, when you think of his passing and, and you think of the, the impact that he made while he was here with us, it's it's invaluable because he had the distinct ability to, you know, really be a true journalist. And he understood research and he understood asking the t- tough questions. But he also had the keen ability to deliver and disseminate information in a way uh, that the public could understand. And a lot of what he did was very complex. Uh, when you think about some of the census mm-hmm. and, and all of the data that he collected um, or even some of the uh, social issues that are go- were going on in the city, uh, he would be able to break things down in a very comprehensive but understandable way um, for some, for pretty much everyone to be able to relate to and, and, and understand. So. Kim? My first thought really is something that one of our other legendary uh, radio personalities said at Amos's funeral about him being an agitator. Mm-hmm. I think Amos Brown understood the community that he was serving. He understood their angsts. He understood their triggers. And he understood how he needed to be that agitator, the one who was privileged to be able to have the connections and to be able to have a mic to serve his people by getting answers for them that could smooth away that could uh, open a door, that could solve a problem. And that's what good journalism really is about, which is, you know, solving those issues and addressing things. And he did that in the modern day, like so many who have gone before us, back to, you know, Ida B. Wells and Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois, these people that understood that they also needed to advocate for a community, be ethical while they were doing it, but solve the issues of the day to move everybody forward, but particularly his own. Abdul, uh, you had a kind of different relationship with Amos because having listened to the two of you over the years, I mean, there are some days I'm I'm reasonably certain that the only two things you agreed on is that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, (laughs) and they disagreed about almost everything in between. Uh, um, Why do you think that uh, that he was as successful as as he was, and what is his lasting impact? And, and you're right, Amos and I did have our uh, respective philosophical uh, differences and perspectives on things, even though, ironically, we both grew up in Chicago, albeit... Me too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, 20, years, 20 years apart, so we all know that so that rough-and-tumble rough world uh, of politics. Uh, one of the things, though, that I think gave Amos his credibility, like I said, despite our differences on respect in the four, was his ability to do the constituent service which is whenever someone would call on the program, Mr. Brown, you know, the, the street lights aren't working, the trash isn't getting picked up, or in a, in a particular neighborhood just wasn't being done right, uh, I will give Amos major props and major credit for knowing who to get a hold of in City Hall, who to get a hold of over at the state, and to a, to a lesser degree, who to call at the, at the federal level uh, in order to get those types of things done and squared away. And, you don't, and you're not able to do that. Unless you have been here for a while, have developed the relationships, understand the institutions, and know who to get a hold of 
in order to make that sort of thing happen. And um, for certain segments of the African-American community that maybe weren't as sophisticated um, as you know, maybe some of the rest of us, that was an invaluable tool and an invaluable service. And, and for that, I will give my old sparring partner you know, nothing but 100% uh, full credit for. It, that sounds, I mean, in, in listening to it, I mean, that, and we're going to talk about, uh, you know, sort of the evolution of journalism in this, but that sounds like a tremendous burden to carry around. It, it's almost as if you are, an, you know, unelected president or governor or mayor um, in some ways, you know, a, a politician without, uh, without a, a portfolio, as it were. You know, clearly he he carried that that load, but is that a special burden that, uh, well, I'm not sure in this market anyway, we can say that there was another journalist quite like Amos Brown. Um, are You know, were there careers like his elsewhere in the country? Abdul, I'll I, go with you first, and then sure. I'd like to... I, I, think, I think to a certain degree it is a burden because, uh, you know, Shannon and Kim, you know, and, and you know, to you, John also... Anytime folks like us who are in the public light, you know, as advocates for our respective positions or whatever it is we do, you don't stop doing that once you leave the studio or the newspaper or, or the radio or television station. You're sort of who you are, you know, 24 hours a day and seven days a week. And regardless of where you are, you know, it is not uncommon for somebody to walk up to you if they recognize your voice or your face and say, hey, aren't you blah, 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 blah. I would love to talk to you about XYZ. I mean, there were days that Amos and I were at, at events, you know, just kind of bumping into each other. Somebody would come along with a question, you know, for either him or me about, you know, some issue that we just say, hey, we'll get back to you on Monday. So, uh, unfortunately, you, you never really stopped wearing that hat. Well, and I guess where I'm going, too, is that there, you know, I think, uh, and it's something that, that Kim said when she talked about, uh, you know, how first and uh, he had had to address issues for everyone, but first and foremost, for his people. Um, that's what I'm trying to get at, is the, 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 at some level the, the distinction, uh, I don't think I'm betraying any secrets here, saying I'm a Caucasian. You know, I think that's fairly clear when you look at me. I had not noticed. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> but uh, I guess where I'm going, at least in, in the journalism world that I started in, you, the training really was you were, in effect, supposed to be a man without a country. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. know, there was, you didn't, not a, you weren't supposed to have people, period. You, the, you know, it was kind of an unrealistic concept and one that the profession has moved away from. But no one expected me to go out and be a spokesperson for, you know, white European Americans of European descent everywhere, <laughs> anything like that. Absolutely. And I, I, I do understand exactly what you're saying, but I think one thing that Amos was able to do, I never heard Amos. And in I don't want to make it clear. If I, I, mm-hmm. I'm not criticizing him oh, no, for no, that. No, I'm no, saying I want to make it really not. clear. In uh, the almost 30 years that I've known Amos, I never heard him once refer to himself as a journalist. Mm-hmm. I heard him refer to himself as a media person. And I know going through Northwestern school, you know, he had journalism skill sets that were impeccable. We all know that. Mm-hmm. He used those skill sets, but he also kind of kept this, he walked this line of being in the media, not necessarily taking all of the stuff that kind of holds journalists back because mm-hmm. he was a salesperson in the media. He was a media manager. He was responsible for an overall product long before he started writing a column, long before he started doing um, talk shows. So he was able to use that skill set and then do other stuff with it and not be held by some of the ethical things that journalists have been traditionally been prevented from doing, you know. So he could also, you know, advocate a little bit more than the average person that's sitting at the newspaper with a lot of stringent rules. Mm-hmm. And I sure. think because he did work for black media, mm-hmm. um, that gave him a bit of flexibility in that advocacy role because he knew that there was a need, there was a void. And so I think, you know, especially 
privately owned black media. You mm-hmm. know, when you think about traditional media, you think about a Gannett or someone like that. You can't really be as vocal or as um, staunch in your views um, a lot of times. Um, but working for private owned black media, I think that gave them a bit of flexibility. And I do understand what you mean as far as um, black media. It's just different. It's different. Well, that's really what I want to, and I want to thank you both because you're actually setting it up where I think the conversation is really going to get interesting Mm -hmm. and we can talk about what the role has been. If you are just joining us, we are talking about uh, the importance and the roles and responsibilities of black media in the wake of uh, Amos Brown's Death. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881 or send us an email at nolimits at wfyi.org. My guests are Shannon Williams, Kim Wells, and Abdul. I am John Kroll. You're listening to No Limits. Please stay with us. Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the StatehouseFile.com, and your host. We are talking about the roles, power, responsibilities, and reach of black media. Uh, the inspiration for the conversation is the life and unfortunate death of the uh, legendary broadcaster Amos Brown. My guests are Shannon Williams, the Indianapolis Recorder, Kim Wells, Radio One, and the Indianapolis Association of Black Journalists. And uh, Abdul, I'm not even sure which of the hats (laughs) to describe for you. You do so many things, uh, including writing a column for the Statehouse File. We were talking really about, uh, you know, the the different ways that that Amos um, built his career, and we're looking really at, at distinctions at, at the specific roles and responsibilities of black media. Abdul, though, in some ways, uh, and this cuts across those lines, he was ahead of the curve. I mean, the the, the way that that we, and one of the places actually where the two of you have uh, some similarities, you know, the buzz now among this emerging generation of journalists is to talk about branding yourself. Um, and he was doing that 30 years ago, if not even before that. You speak to that and that importance, Abdul? Uh, no, I know. I think, like, you know, getting to your branding question, I know it is important because um, for someone like, like I said, Amos was branding you know, before anybody knew what it was. And, you know, but I'm, I'm willing to bet money, you know, as an African-American, you know, journalist, media person, you know, 30-something years ago, you know, how do you stand out? How do you get people to take you seriously? You know, how do you get known? And by doing what Amos did, you know, sort of that, you know, part advocate, part agitator, you know, that gets the newsmakers and the policymakers to show up and, you know, kind of take notice. And it also compels them when you when you do your homework and your research uh, for them to take you seriously. So, you know, um, as former mayor, I think Bart, former Mayor Bart Peterson uh, said in uh, one of the media interviews, Mm-hmm. You know, when Amos called, you better have your facts straight uh, because he was going to come at you, you know, with the facts and, you know, with data. So by sort of branding himself, like I say, you know, part agitator, part, you know, advocate, you know, that's what you do to, to get the results, you know, to have the longevity so you can have, you know, that positive impact in your community. Well, and like, like you, Abdul, he worked across media platforms, too, long before that became oh, yeah. commonplace. Now, I will say this. It did take my good friend a little while to get used to Twitter. So oh, they yeah. Have to, they did have to pull Amos a little bit, kicking and screaming into Twitter. So when he and I would kind of go back and forth on, on Twitter, I think he loved it, even though he yeah. wasn't really crazy about it. Well, uh, and that, that whole idea, you know, even, even now, it was relatively rare because Amos just – is a little bit older than than I am, or was a little bit older than than I am. You know, in the days when we entered the business, it was sort of you picked one lane or the other. You were either a print journalist or you were a broadcast journalist, and very rarely were you doing doing both. Mm-hmm. But Shannon, that's pretty much where he was from the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what makes him unique. And I think to Abdul's point, that's what helped to brand him. 
you know. And but it also, again, I, I know we keep saying fill, fill the void, but it really did. It, it filled a void, um, and that's kind of journalism. It's it's what it's evolved to. Um, and so when you think about what journalism is today, and you think thirty, forty years ago, and he was doing those things, it just really um, makes it clear and really demonstrates how uh, relevant and what a trendsetter he was. Well, and I guess we keep using that phrase. What void was he filling? I don't know that there was a minority voice out there quite like Amos's. I'm, and you have to excuse me, I'm still a bit younger, so I don't know a, okay. lot, okay. <laughs> uh, a lot of things. We're not going to hold that against yeah. you. Okay. But I don't know that there was anyone there at that here in Indianapolis at that time to deliver and disseminate information and it have the expectations that Amos had um, in the you know early 80s. Um, and Kim, you might be able to speak more to this, but in, in the way that he did. And really, you know, I think there were some, obviously, and there were a, a lot of very diplomatic people. Not that Amos wasn't, but I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, he, could, he could be, he very, could, he could he be, could be very, very diplomatic, could, but if you got on the wrong side oh, yeah. of him, you knew it in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know that there was anyone, um, at least from the media perspective. You know, obviously the recorder's been around for 120 years, So, yeah. um, but even – the recorder has changed in its coverage and, and the types of stories it covered. So I don't even know at that time if the recorder was doing that as consistently as Amos was. Um, Let me go back just a little bit. Sure. One of the reasons why Amos was able to brand himself so and kind of ahead of the curve mm-hmm. was beca- because, again, Amos came into the business as a media person who came into the me- business selling. So he knew how to market, and then he moved into management. So he was responsible for branding and marketing and making sure that an entire heritage station was successful. Mm -hmm. So he was able to transfer that to himself. There were other voices that were in the community. There were long-term columnists at the Indianapolis Recorder. There were other people that were in this Indianapolis marketplace that were in uh, the TV stations and that had made the entry into mainstream media as well. But again, unlike Amos, they were held by journalism ethics and standards that Amos did not have to necessarily adhere to being a media manager, not the Mm -hmm. old WTLC newsroom. He wasn't in that newsroom. He was responsible for the overall product. And so that's how he was able to, ahead of the curve, brand himself. And I think he did a magnificent job of that. Because he was able to just do a lot of things, not only for himself, but take other people along with him and serve other people along with him. Because he learned through coming to this community, to, through listening to people and building relationships with people, where the bones were buried and who to stick it to, really. <laughs> that, 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 that's pretty much it. And as far as, you know, uh, filling a void. Because he was not necessarily held to those strictest journalism ethics, mm-hmm. he could say things and do things that other journalists in the market could not do. They could go get the facts. They could go interview you. The ethics that I'm held to, I can go interview you yeah. and come back and say what you said and he- roll this piece of tape. Yeah, but, but he you can't could do say more. That I'm completely right. full of nonsense or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. But then he could yeah. take it to the next level because of the other experiences that he had, um, that he brought to the table. Abdul, I know you got to go in a couple of minutes and, and, and teach a class. In some, I want to get to the bit, because you're a publisher as well, um, to the business side of it, too. The fact that, uh, and I think this picks up on Kim's point, that he wasn't just a journalist, uh, because those of us who came up in that era we're taught, you know, there's got to be a firewall between the revenue side and yeah. and and what you you do. But Kim's point here is that in some ways the fact that he had to straddle that wall from the beginning worked to his advantage. And it also uh, it, it helps his advantage. I'll never get something a professor told me once in journalism school. In the first day of class, he asked us, "Hey, what's the purpose of news?" And everybody gave the obligatory. You know, to inform the public, to hold people accountable. He's like, you're all wrong. The point of news is to sell advertising. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and coming from that, that perspective, 
you you understand the business model that like I said, you know, you can't be the advocate, you can't tell the stories, but at the end of the day, if we're not if we're all not putting money, you know, in, in the pockets, we the presses aren't running, the broadcast towers aren't going, and none of this other stuff matters. And by by understanding that, I think that made Amos even a, a better broadcaster by understanding the market, knowing how market forces worked and knowing what the market interplay was. You know, that gets the makers, that gets the attention of the newsmakers, which gets the attention of, of the advertisers, which helps you keep the lights on and, the, like I said, the printing press is going and the broadcast tower going so, so we can all do the stories and tell the stories that, that we want to do, which is you know, kind of part of the business model that I use to sort of stay afloat, which is, you know, sell as much advertisement with Abdul Incorporated as possible to look like a NASCAR uniform. <laughs> Abdul, I know you got to run. I want to thank you very much for, for joining us and taking part in this conversation. Oh, no, not a problem, my friend. Always good to chat with you. Uh, and Kim and Chen, I know we'll all be running into each other soon. So. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, Good to talk to sure. you. Thanks much. Well, if you are just joining us, we are, we are talking about uh, the role of black media, particularly black news media, uh, in the aftermath of Amos Brown's death. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881. You can send an email to nolimits at wfyi.org. You can find us on Facebook at nolimitswfyi or on Twitter at wfyi. Shannon, you said something a couple of minutes ago um, that that has really been sticking in my mm-hmm. my head. You talked about the recorder's long history mm-hmm. and the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, it, we're now at a century and a quarter, mm-hmm. um, which is a long time. Take us through... Yeah. Uh, and that the recorder's role has changed and evolved over time. Could you walk us through that evolution, sure. where it started and where it is now? Sure, certainly. Um, you know, the recorder started in 1895, and it originally started as a two-page church bulletin, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously there were a lot of things going on, not only locally here in Indiana, but throughout the country um, that were, you know, very difficult, intense times for African Americans. So the founders decided to expand uh, that church bulletin and make a full-fledged newspaper. Um, and so the recorder has been a voice for the community. And at that time, early in the in the late 1800s, early 1900s, not only uh, was the recorder um, talking about local things, but so much was going on nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, relative to African-Americans and the disproportionate treatment. Yeah, that was Plessy um, versus Ferguson. Of course, era. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, really an advocate and just really, you know, I hate to sound cliche, but really to educate and inform the community. Um, Over the years, uh, that's always been the underlining mission. I think with the different owners, some things have changed. Um, There was a time, you know, prior to Bill Mays owning the company, I know um, a lot of people would say, well, the only thing that was on the front page of the recorder were mugshots and and negative news, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, you know, and that might have been relevant at that time, you know, dealing with what's going on in Indiana. But, you know, I know since uh, the Mays family has owned it and when Caroline was involved and now that I'm president, um, we mm-hmm. really try to focus on, you know, all types of news, certainly positive things, because you just, the reality is you just don't hear a lot of positive things um, relative to minorities and African-Americans in particular in mainstream media. Um, and so we really try to focus on positive, but also be that advocate and talk about those tough and difficult uh, discussions, which is why Amos column in the paper was so significant because mm-hmm. again to Kim's point um, you know especially when I became president I you know prior to that I was vice president and editor so for me it was all about content and and the stories and the articles that we told but being in the, my current capacity I'm like oh wait a minute we have to get some revenue and we can't do this and we can't do that because it might impact some certain things um, so Amos was able to be that agitator and to um, uh, you know provide that very distinctive voice in our community while still, while the recorder was still, you know, practicing those high journalistic standards. Has the role changed over, uh, you know, post-civil rights era? Because, uh, you know, 50 years ago in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in this city, um, mainstream newsrooms would have been segregated. Mm-hmm. I mean, completely segregated. Uh, you know, now that at least in theory, <laughs> I'm qualifying here. We live in an integrated America and an integrated Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that create a change in the role of traditionally African-American media? Kim, I'll start with you and give Shannon a, a second to collect her thoughts. Mm-hmm. There, uh, I guess the best way to uh, d- describe that is going back to my other hat that I wear, yeah. um, 
particularly for this conversation, which is the Indianapolis Association of Black Journalists. We've spent a lot of time over the years being that uh, voice and being that uh, watchdog of mainstream uh, media Mm -hmm. to make sure that there was inclusion and to make sure that there was diversity and that it wasn't um, surface and false, to make sure that once the door opened and African Americans were hired in the newsrooms, mm-hmm. that there were in uh, there there were welcoming environments for them, so that they would stay here and make Indiana their mm-hmm. home and be a part of this community to find the various solutions to the problems that we all cover. Um, and and you know and each and every day you don't have that opportunity to make or break that one story that changes everybody's lives but every once in a while it it <laughs> happens and it just makes you makes you feel good but just going into whether or not things have changed yes yes they have the role has changed a little bit but you know the more things change the more things stay the same and it seems like we're still fighting some of the same battles that we were mm-hmm. fighting way back when, which is, you know, diversity in the newsrooms. Um, now, even for uh, people who got in the newsrooms way back when, what do you do with older workers when the, mm-hmm. the business is changing yeah. and everything's yeah. going to digital right. and making that landscape fair so people can continue to work and so that they can share really good journalism and journalism skills with folks who are coming up who only know digital mm-hmm. and only know, you know, the quick, fast and maybe not really have the real good skill set. So, yes, Changing. more they change, and more re- things stay you're, the same. You're absolutely right. Um, one of the things that I notice in, in minority media in particular is how the roles change from a gender perspective. Mm-hmm. So it seems like when I initially started in the industry uh, 15 years ago, there were, it was the newsroom, even at the Recorder, and we're a part of a larger group of African-American papers, about 200 in the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I saw that trend across the country. The newsrooms were pre- pre- predominantly African-American and male. You know, you mm-hmm. had male editors and, 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 and copy editors and, and writers, and it's really changed. And even in the areas of graphic design, I think women are playing a, a larger role in media in general, um, um, for minority media in particular. Um, I've seen a, an influx of women and even female publishers of black newspapers. Um, there are just as many female publishers just as they are there are African-American men publishers. And the other thing that has also changed is we are under a constant um, barrage of making sure that what we do fits a budget. So, you know, whether it's the recorder trying yeah. to, you know, make a profit yeah. or whether it's, you know, an entity that's a radio newsroom. Because, you know, a newsroom used to look like, you know, 15, 20 people Mm -hmm. with cars on the streets and all of this stuff. And then it gets down to one, maybe two people, if you're lucky, to do everything. So that has changed as well. Yeah, you're definitely. Budget first. Yeah, budget and and you're having to do more. The expectations of journalists coming out of college now as opposed to before. They have to do more. They have to have more skill sets. They have to know print. More with less. Do more with less. Yeah. If they had, uh, has it changed though in that, you know, some of this is just across the news media period. Everybody's Mm -hmm. operating with tighter margins these days. In some ways though, all of the new models point to identifying your audiences Mm -hmm. and I would think African American media in some ways have a head start there because Mm -hmm. there is a historic audience that has been (laughs) Yeah, we know who you are. (laughs) Yeah, have we we not well and you've also built that uh, that real strong Mm -hmm. audience base through the Mm -hmm. years. Um, in about twenty seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Has that proved to be an edge, Shannon? Certainly, yeah. It's helped us because we've had that built-in demographic and, and that longevity. And for African Americans in particular, um, we have a, there's it's a cultural thing to read minority media, whether it's the Recorder or the Amsterdam News or Ebony and Jet. We just have a history, a history of seeing those publications on Grandma's table in the house. Um, and so we have that built-in demographic. So it, it does help. We are talking about the power and reach of black media in the aftermath of Amos Brown's death. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881. I'm talking with Shannon Williams of the Indianapolis Recorder and Kim Wells of Radio 1 and the Indianapolis Association of Black Journalists. Please stay with us. 
Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the statehousefile.com, and your host. We are talking with Shannon Williams of the Indianapolis Recorder and Kim Wells of Radio One and the Indianapolis Association of Black Journalists about the power of black media and particularly in the aftermath of the death of Amos Brown. Before we resume that conversation, we probably ought to bring some news to you. We've just learned that Jared Fogle, who is the former face of the Subway sandwich chain, will spend more than 15 years in federal prison for sex crimes against children and child pornography. The sentence, handed down a few moments ago by federal judge Tanya Walton Pratt, exceeds that of the one prosecutors had requested. He was sentenced to prison for distribution and receipt of child pornography and traveled to engage in illicit sexual conduct with a minor. After prison, Fogel, who's 38, will be on parole and he'll be registered as a sex offender. He also will be prohibited from working with groups that allow alone time with children and the use of his cell phone and computers will be monitored electronically. Fogel also has paid a total of $1.4 million in restitution to his victims and was ordered by the court Thursday to pay $50,000 in forfeitures. Judge Tanya Walton Pratt said during the proceedings that the plea agreement does not prohibit the victims from seeking more restitution. Our reporters, WFYI News' reporters Ryan Delaney and Darren Mullen, are at the courthouse right now. You can follow them at WFYI News. You also can go to our website, which is WFYI.org, to get more information. So some big news there. Major news. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. She was tough on him. Uh, yeah. yeah, understandably so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, trying to get what twelve? Twelve and a half. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now that we have have broken that news, let's get back to talking about uh, where we were. You know, and I guess one of the things that I'd like to explore um, in terms of the role of of black media is uh, I'm going to relate two conversations here that, that I had. One took place. Um, probably close to 20 years ago at a newspaper where I worked. And there mm-hmm. was an African-American reporter I worked with, a uh, really, really good guy, who just got really frustrated one day. And he was he said, I am so sick of this place. He said, the only time I see a black man on the front page of, of our newspaper, he's either in a sports jersey mm-hmm. or in handcuffs. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, Understand it. And then the other conversation is one, and i got to give a shout-out to a couple of my students, Alicia mm-hmm. and, and Kiara. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were talking about doing this show coming up, said, you know, one of the reasons the black media are so important is that there are still so few examples of people who look like us, mm-hmm. who come from where we do, mm-hmm. who are doing this. Yeah. And this is coming from journalism. Oh, yeah, yeah, journalism students right. who are saying that... that, that there is an inspirational role uh, that black media and black media figures perform and to some degree are obligated to mm-hmm, <laughs> re- mm-hmm. perform, which was the the burden part we got to mm-hmm. with, with Amos. Could you speak to to those points, really what is still the, the pigeonholing of, of African-Americans in mainstream news and also that, that role of trying to inspire young people to think that there are more possibilities than perhaps the, the larger world would suggest they have. Kim, you're, you're leaning in. So yeah, I I'm, I, I'm chomping she at the bit it. on this one. The Indianapolis Association of Black Journalists for more than 20 years has really fought this fight. And we were the ones that have gone into mainstream newsrooms all across this town to sit down with media managers and to hold them accountable for that type of coverage to make sure that coverage was fair so that it wasn't that situation because those two examples are what what we know and what we've tried to fight that you see just the baller mm-hmm. or a criminal mm-hmm. and nothing in between. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we want to show to the community because it's not reflective of reality. It, it is, is not the not, majority of the community. I'm sorry. To absolutely. It, it is not. And that's not the legacy that we want to leave to our children by ingraining that in and helping them to ingrain that in day in and day out because you can be more than either of those. And we had successes doing that because mm-hmm. we would um, tape newscasts. We would collect newspapers and ask tough questions of media managers and get back responses of better 
journalism that is fairer and broader and more reflective of the community that those entities serve. You know, we could not have, and I'm going here, Caucasian male anchors coming onto the airwaves Mm -hmm. in Indianapolis calling black people thugs. Mm -hmm. And that was regular Mm -hmm. and commonplace Mm -hmm. in this town. We put a stop to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was incredibly important. And I'm just passionate about that point. I'll let you address (laughs) the other one. No, (laughs) it's, it's certainly important. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like it's certainly unfair. Uh-huh. It's an unfair representation. It doesn't represent the majority of of, of, of the African American community, but it's also it, it doesn't help us as a the the, the general community. You know, African Americans, Caucasians, Hispanics. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help us evolve mm-hmm. because sometimes I, I really believe that traditional media believe starts to believe their own hype, and so mm-hmm. that therefore they mm-hmm. don't open. They don't. You know, they aren't they aren't as receptive to considering African-American anchors. Um, They're not receptive as receptive to consider African-American, you know, media managers because they think, oh, wow, well, maybe they're going to rob or cheat me out of something. But it also it also speaks to and Kim kind of touched on this. It speaks to what message are we sending our children and what are we giving? What hope are we giving them for the future? So when President Obama was elected president, it was such a big deal um, in the African-American community in particular, because for so long, no, we didn't have anyone to in that role to say, oh, I can do that, too. You know, you just don't imagine those type of things. You just don't think it's possible. I've, you know, spoken with people who are still alive today who in their lifetime, they never thought they would see an African-American president. So now that we have one, that tells little Johnny, who's five years old, that, hey, I can do that as well. And that increases. It's real. It's real and it's visible and they see it. And that creates a sense of hope and a sense of uh, purpose for that young man or that young lady. Has it changed, though? Um, I mean, that the dynamic that uh, the reporter I worked with you know, sports jersey, I mean, it, it, if we just broadened one category to be on mm-hmm. the front page or to get out in front, you, you've either got to be wearing a, a basketball jersey, be in handcuffs, or be elected president mm-hmm. of the United <laughs> States. <laughs> or, or has that really opened things up so that we're getting much more a view of, of the, the full life of a community? I think, and, and Kim could speak to this, I think from a local perspective, we are seeing more minor, minority faces on, on, on the airways. But I, as that, far are as that, that are staying. Mm-hmm. But as far as the perception of African Americans in general, yeah. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done from traditional media. I think the perception, you, you read about it, you see it on television all the time. You, you turn on any of the local networks here, and the first five minutes are talking about crime and violence. And I'm, you know, and usually if when it bleeds, it, it leads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it and bleeds, that, it leads. And I don't think that's going to change. Yeah. yeah. But often there have been, you know, when, when they talk about those stories and they don't show a picture, you're left to assume that the, the, the perpetrator was white or Caucasian. You know, but when they show a picture, you know. And, and that's something that I know. I hear young journalists and aspiring journalists complain about. We complain about it in our newsroom, too. Um, and so there, that's um, instituting a sense of fear. Donald Trump is kind of, I don't want to get it all political or anything, okay. but it works to the— Show's um, called No Limits for a Reason. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it speaks to the fear. All and right. so you, 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 you know, you— place a certain level of fear in people and and it's just it's just not fair so i think you know from a perception standpoint local media national media has a long way to go um and from a standpoint of what's important so even if it's not talking about crime in particular like this this person you know killed you know five people unfortunate tragedies you know we hear all these um all this media about Paris, which is justifiable, and you need to hear about that because that's a major issue. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. It had the uh, the the tra- the tragedy in Kenya earlier in the week didn't get mm-hmm. nearly hasn't gotten nearly as much attention. And so, not only is it in America, but just kind of across the country. I was recently in Germany talking to some German um, newspapers, and they're trying to get better at it. And they they told me very clearly, this is what we believe. We believe that all blacks are thugs and hoodlums because that's what is you know it's disseminated to us and that's what why not that's what all the media is talking about and so from a from a global perspective i think media in america in particular does not have the stellar reputation as some of us may uh, you know may mm-hmm. certainly hope for and wish but 
Yeah, it, it, it goes beyond the crime, um, you know, locally, but, you know, the tragedy in, the, the tragedy in Kenya and other places, it just Earlier doesn't get year. Boko mm-hmm. Haram with what mm-hmm. they did to the Nigerian. You just don't get as much national or local media attention. And so that really speaks to the role and the, and the importance of black media. That's what, not going away. Yes, and, it's not going away. And what, what sort of counterpoint, then, do black media provide to uh, uh, to the mainstream traditional media, we we have to tell the, the the accurate story that there are positive things going on in the black community. Whether it's you know um, whether it's a, a a certain scientist at Lilly who you know just developed this new patent that's you know doing some amazing things, we have to just tell that accurate and true story. It's not us, you know, and it's and it and the great thing is. Those stories are readily available. We can't even we can't even publish enough papers to tell them, um, and so there's not a deficit of stories. Um, but as far as the coverage, that that is very limiting from other entities. But for us, we just have to keep telling the stories uh, to educate and empower our community. And I'm a very inclusive person. You know, mm-hmm. I, I hate sometimes that we have to. Be, you know, it has to be an African American community thing or a Hispanic thing. But because there is such a need and because there is such a discrepancy in the treatment of um, of African-Americans or Hispanics, you have to be that voice. And sometimes I know I get, you know, you just you get weary sometimes of having to be that voice and, and make that claim. But it has to be done. And I apologize yeah. to some degree for putting both of you in that role. No, no, we do it. I realize, well, but <laughs> yeah. it gets to the point that, uh, that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. Nobody comes to me and asks me to be the voice for the entire Caucasian mm-hmm. world. Um, <laughs> and it's a good thing because I wouldn't be representative, <laughs> I don't think. But uh, that is a role, unfortunately, that that African-American professionals mm-hmm. overall, and I think black journalists or black media figures in particular, carry. Kim, I'm, I'm, I think yeah, you got I'm, where the question is going. I've got something to, to, yeah, to add yeah. to this. I don't necessarily go out you know, looking for that positive story. But I'm going to tell you what my role is being in the black press. And I've worked, you know, general press as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done NPR. <laughs> but um, God bless you. <laughs> hey. But my opportunity in the black press is if it is a crime story, because I am African-American, I may be able to bring another perspective to that story in digging out the real reasons why Mm -hmm. something happened, the societal reasons that somebody might have made a poor choice Mm -hmm. or a move or to know the question to go in and to ask because of a kinship. Mm-hmm. Now, they may not be my cousin. They might not be my kin. But an, a certain understanding because of some similar backgrounds. Yes, we were taught to leave it at the door mm-hmm. in old school journalism. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody ever truly 100% ever did. Because you bring a little bit of yourself to every okay, story, yeah. and then you have to try to sit that down. But your experience also gives you a certain perspective on which way to go in asking a question and what you see. That's why it's always important for there to be diverse faces and mm-hmm. diverse voices in a newsroom. Yeah, and and really quickly, I don't want to. I don't. I hope I didn't. Um insinuate this the recorder we're about positive news but we're really oh, about yeah. realistic news yeah. and so we really and, and sometimes we take yeah, heat it's from not the, the indianapolis Pollyanna. yeah it's, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, we take uh, heat yeah. sometimes from the black community because you yeah. know like kim said historically you know we've been asked to leave it at the door so in our community um a lot of things a lot of people say you, you don't talk about family business Mm-hmm. In public. And so that's the same thing, you know. And so sometimes the recorder would get heat for talking about the high instances of black on black crime. It's a reality. It's a problem. It needs to be addressed. And so we'll cover stories like that in the paper because we want to be real and authentic and honest with the community. And we want to certainly help to empower them. And only the only way to truly empower someone is to educate them with truth, you know, and resources. So, excuse me. Our, our, our careers... Um like Amos's, even going to be possible going forward. I mean, this is uh, in part because media. Uh, I mean, the whole idea of mass media themselves are, are 
you know, is, is falling by the wayside. Um, and that reaching your audiences tend to be more targeted uh, and much more narrow. And while you may work across uh, media platforms, it's often to reach the same people just <laughs> through different, different avenues. Is it going to be possible to have a career like that? Shannon, I'll start with you think so. I, I'm hopeful. Um, and I, you know, I'm speaking from the minority media perspective. I think there's the, the probability is a lot higher from the minority media perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I certainly think so. And because of what we're asking of journalists, to, what we're asking journalists to do now in college and once mm-hmm. they get out into the real world, we'll, we'll have to have um, some individuals who are, um, you know, multifaceted and multi-talented. So I, I believe it's possible. If if not just from you know um, their skill set, but also as Kim mentioned earlier, from a budgetary standpoint, I, it's it, the industry yeah. is struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think journal uh, Amos had a once in a lifetime career. Now what I see happening is that young people will be able to forge their own way and follow the path of how it evolves from for them whether it's journalism or, you know, the wider media, because the diaspora of media is so mm-hmm. much wider. And you've you know, not only got the electronic stuff going in, but you've got people who are, you know, running around with iPhones and mm-hmm. Android phones, mm-hmm. and they're calling themselves citizen journalists. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of opportunity. Well, and the whole relationship with an audience has right. changed, uh-huh. right. too. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Will they have that kind of longevity, a 40-year career doing it? I don't know. People change their, they change careers all the time. Since loyalty isn't here as much <laughs> today. <laughs> um, and budgets aren't the same to mm-hmm. allow, I think, what Amos was able to do. But I'm still hopeful. You know, if, if a, a kid wanted to go study journalism, I'd be honest with them and tell them to pick up other skill sets, too. Yeah. Um, and be very diverse in what you want to do. But, yeah, learn how to communicate, learn how to write, and go for it. And I guess it would, 10 seconds apiece, what I'd, I'd like to get at, could anyone, even if you can have that kind of career of longevity, mm-hmm. is it going to be possible to have that kind of impact because the audience is so much more diverse these days? The audience is diverse, um, but I think they can have that impact, but the, it, it has to be authentic. It has to be real, and there has to be a passion. We, The audience in general tends to sh- sift through um, trash or, in, or or things that aren't genuine. So I think... Um, one of the great assets about Amos is he was genuine and it was very passionate and you felt it in his heart. Um, and so as journalists, I think we're called to do it. And, and so I think it ha- it can be done, but there has to be a sense of passion. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> great last word. I'd like to thank my guests, Shannon Williams, Kim Wells, and Abdul. You have been listening to No Limits. Thank you for joining us. No Limits is a production of 90.1 WFYI Public Radio, Indianapolis. Executive producer, Michelle Johnson. Producer, Shannon Cagle. Interactive media coordinator, Melissa Davis. Technical producers, Cedric Freeman and Chris Flood. And board engineer, Joe Hatcher. Abby Terzini screens our calls. No Limits is made available through IPBS, Indiana's public broadcasting stations. Mm-hmm.